Hear these words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this should be very familiar to you. And we will recite it together after this and have the cheater, cheater notes up in front for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, or the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile, in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the word of the Lord. So I've read it, and I want to give you an opportunity to, those of you who have taken the big challenge of memorizing 15 through 20, give you a chance to kind of glow without having your little notes, or maybe you could close your eyes and see how you do it from memory. And those of you who aren't quite there yet or get stuck around a certain section, we're going to say it together. Some, there's something about powerful about the Word of God spoken, 
memorized and recalled. So let's, uh, let's go through. John, would you throw up those? There's uh, three slides. Ready? Let's do it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn of dead, and the, <laughs> for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Keep working on it. You have another five weeks. Five weeks. Store it away in your heart. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 3 to 8, though, building up to the, that last section. And this morning, I want to show you, uh, kind of illustrate out how that grace and growth are God-given gifts that should lead you ultimately to gratitude, if Jesus truly is the core. Grace and growth are God-given gifts that should lead to gratitude if Jesus truly is the core. In other words, having Jesus at the, the core of your life will produce some things that people will look at and they will, they'll say, man, there is no way that could ever come out of your life except, here's the only exception, the only reason, the only way is this is a work of God. I don't understand. There, everything about your life seems to be falling apart. You're in the midst of this turmoil right now going on. And somehow there is growth and there's grace. And it's coming out. There's a deep sense of gratitude. What is going on? There's no other explanation than it's an act of God. And when they say that, using your life as a conduit of grace, God is supremely glorified. So I, I want to call you to make your life just this massive conduit, a massive conduit of gratitude towards God. To live into the reality that, that Jesus Christ is the core and to watch how gratitude will just naturally spring out of and through your life. That's my desire for us as a family. That as we look at what God has done, that we will grow in grace. We'll see spiritual growth, growth in our life. And there will be this amazing gratitude that people will have to respond. That is nothing but an act of God. So let's kind of break it down. We're going to start with verse 3. You see that Paul begins this letter by expressing his love to the church in Colossae. Letting them know that how often he thanks thinks of them and how often he prays for them. And when he prays for them, something happens. When he's praying for them, his heart begins to overflow with gratitude to God for what God has done in their lives. Paul just has this pastoral heart that is just 
overflow. He starts thinking about people, thinking about. And remember, Paul does not know a single person in that church. He's never met them face to face. The only one that he knows is Epaphras, who is now in prison with him. And he was a faithful minister of, of Christ to this church. And so Paul, not knowing a soul there, when thinking about them, his heart is just overwhelming. It's just flowing out with just this gratitude for what has happened in their lives. This letter begins with a typical kind of affirmation and form of affirmation and gratitude. However, there's two things that stands out. One, it's plural. We always thank God. And it is focused. It has like this singular kind of focus. It is focused on the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it fits well because of what we already know about Colossians, what we talked about last week. Namely, Paul was with a group of other men imprisoned, shackled together. And during his imprisonment, they received this report from Epaphras about the church in Colossae. And further, we learned that the overarching theme of this book is how to live with Jesus Christ at the center. So it really is very fitting that Paul would say, we always give thanks to who? God. We're thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with Jesus Christ at the center, he is thanking Jesus. He's thanking God for this work as he introduces his letter. You can kind of imagine what's going on in this prison. Paul and these men are, are gathered together. There's really nothing to do. They can't pull out their iPhones. They can't play Tetris. They, they're not Facebooking and you know, talking to people across the world. They're, they're not even texting. What are they doing? These are men together imprisoned because of the gospel. These are faithful ministers of the word and more than likely, they are regularly in prayer, thinking about the works that are going out, the works that they know of and the works that they don't know of. And as they survey kind of this landscape of churches, they are now focusing on the work in Colossae. The word for prayer here simply means just communication with God. And these men are simply talking to God about what they know is happening here in this church in Colossae. And the product of their communication with God is that they are very grateful for what God is doing. Notice that Paul is not commending them per se of what they've done. Rather, his heart is filled with gratitude because he knows that their lives have become a testimony of how great God ultimately is. In other words, they have become conduits of grace to God. They were growing, they were changing, they were maturing. And Paul sees all this as a product of God's work in their midst. Are they at a dangerous point where they can easily be veering off just one degree, one vector change, where they can ultimately be brought down a very destructive road? Absolutely. But Paul is seeing in their life some fruit. They are growing. It's bearing fruit in their life, as it is in the whole rest of the world. And Paul sees that. And as he's praying, he says, I give thanks to God. I'm so thankful for what God is doing in your life. This word thank in the Greek is eucharisto. And those of you who have maybe a more Catholic background 
or an aversion to Catholic background may hear that word and go, ooh, I recognize that. It's kind of a religious word. The word Eucharist. How many of you have ever heard Eucharist, the Eucharist? Okay, Eucharist is a great word. Eucharisto is a, is a great word. It means good grace. Good grace. In other words, it is something from God, grace, and it is absolutely good, right? God's good grace. The form of the verb that Paul used here it means that it is something continually happening. Meaning that Paul is continually led to a great joy in his heart when he thinks about what is happening in this church in Colossae. It's not like, oh, wow, that was a really good thing. Let's move on to another thing. No, he, he is continually thankful and grateful for what God is doing. I'm thankful and continually thankful for what is going on. He is constantly remembering them in his prayers. And he is constantly brought to a place of gratitude for what is going on. Wouldn't that be a great thing for our church? Every time I think of Connor Anderson, I am continually grateful. Continually grateful for what God is doing in Connor. Every time I think about Katie Conkle, man, I, I love the grace and the growth that's happening in her life, and I'm continually thankful for her as I'm praying for her. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? We see here, God is at work, and Paul is seeing how good it is. Gratitude is an important theme that we see throughout this book of, of Colossians, and it should be an important theme. I mean, after all, if the focus is on Christ and His work at the core, then you should think that gratitude should be very close by. We think about Jesus Christ, we think about what He's done, immediately the next thing should be gratitude, right? Right? So listen to three other places that uh, gratitude surfaces in this book of Colossians. First Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, how? Abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians three fifteen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. What a beautiful thing. But he doesn't stop there. And be thankful. Colossians 4.2. Continued steadfast in prayer, being, watching, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So I want to suggest to you that people who really understand the centrality of Jesus Christ are really grateful people. That should be a mark of your life. When you really understand the centrality of Jesus Christ to your life, what he has done, is doing, and will continue to do in your life, that should produce, naturally produce, a grateful heart. They are grateful for what has happened. They are grateful for what God is doing in them. They're grateful to see what God is doing in other people. It's not just a self-centered gratitude. I love what God's doing in me. I love seeing what he's doing in you. 
wow, look at that. And it's abounding. They, they are so transfixed on Jesus Christ and the gospel that everywhere they look, everywhere they look, they see gifts of grace. Everywhere. Even in the midst of the darkest night, they are so grateful because of what Christ has done. They are able to see through the darkness and they are able to be thankful. They are able to enjoy and see and savor grace. And this is what happens when your heart is captivated by Jesus Christ and what Christ does. Whenever you, when it, whatever you see becomes a conduit of grace. In other words, gratitude and the centrality of Jesus Christ go hand in hand. They cannot be two separate things. They have got to be together. So getting Jesus at the core can or should create a new level of gratitude. But unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, does it? The reverse is also true. People, people who get their, get their focus off of Christ become ungrateful. and they're, they're driven by the circumstances in their life and it just brings them down. Their, their eyes are no longer on Christ, so no longer can they be grateful. It's just the reality. So my question for you this morning is, is kind of twofold. Do you see the world through the lens of a Christ-centered gratitude? As you are looking at situations and things in your life, do you see it through the lens of a Christ-centered gratitude? Of what Christ has done for me, and I can see every cir circumstance, every situation, good, bad, ugly, mundane, plain, whatever it is, do you see it through the lens of a Christ-centered gratitude? And secondly, would anyone, or could anyone, use your life as a conduit of gratitude for God. How much praise to God did your life create this week? Really, think about it. Was there anything about your life as you are responding to the grace given to you and the growth that should come out of that and the gratitude that you have for God, was there anything about your life that would create other people to go, wow, I've received a gift of grace. I've been encouraged. I've been lifted up. I've been challenged. I have seen something beautiful and powerful in your life. What is going on? You see, part of understanding and embracing the centrality of Jesus is realizing that the more we understand about Christ as the core, the more grateful we become. And the more others become grateful to God for us. I, I want somehow for us as Missio Dei Church to be filled with people who are like spiritual telescopes. That they bring greater clarity and focus to the glory of God. But let us move on to verses 4 and 5. The second thing that we notice in this text is the specific thing I should say, things that Paul, expresses his, that Paul expresses his gratitude for. And they're laid out in kind of a familiar triad, if you look carefully. Faith, hope, 
and love. This is kind of a Paul triad that you are going to see frequently throughout his writings. This is what we've this is what he had heard from Epaphras, and, and this is what led him to say, Thank you, God. You did this in them. So the first thing that he lists here, the first thing in this triad is faith in Jesus Christ. No doubt this is mentioned first because it is the very means by which they came to this saving grace. Faith in Jesus Christ. However, the focus here is not so much on Jesus as the object of their faith as it is that Jesus is the very living environment in which their faith is lived out. Jesus is the environment in which they are living out their faith. Yes, Jesus is the object of their faith, but he's not just that thing over there. He is the one that, in which they are embedded in. We talk about, you look through the book of um, Ephesians, and constantly Paul is talking about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And it's not that in Christ over there. It's you are in Christ now. So our faith is lived out in the living and breathing environment of Christ. Anytime you ever want to say amen, you better be saying amen. If you're silent because you are lazy, shame on you. If this does not stir in your heart, see me afterwards. We'll write lines or something, but come on. In other words, faith in Christ means a position from which a life of faith can flow. It's a faith that is the product of a Christ-centered core. The centrality of Christ eclipses every faith-robbing enemy. Amen. And I, you, some of you know, especially this morning, that the centrality of Christ eclipses everything. It's to eclipse all these faith-robbing enemies. You see, this is where some of us miss the power of the gospel. We hear the phrase faith in Christ and we immediately think about that first time that we came to Christ or when we made profession of faith. And we talk about, oh, that's when I, I put my faith in Christ. And we only think of it in terms of salvation, right? However, Colossians is a book that celebrates a lifetime faith in Christ. A faith that has brought us forgiveness. A faith that we live in every day. We believe in this Christ and we're living in this Christ-saturated life. The church had made Jesus central and they were attempting to live the reality of that faith. Therefore, he celebrates their faith in Christ. The second thing that we see in this text is that he has this joy for their love for all the saints. There's a frequent connection between genuine faith and love. Galatians 5, 6 says that faith works through love. Colossians, uh, 1 Colossians 13, 2 says that if you have incredible faith, but you don't have love, you are nothing. You're just a clanging bell, a symbol. You're just noisy. 
First Colossians 5, 8 is, the very, is a very interesting cross-reference because it calls believers to put on a breastplate of faith and love. And that connects, connects it to a hope in a similar fashion to when Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 4, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet the helmet of hope of salvation. So Christ at the core creates a faith-filled love. Christ at the core creates a faith-filled love. When Christ really is central, really is central, the church overflows with love for one another. And it's not conditional. And we can't but help ourselves to express it. Third, Paul identifies in this triad that faith and love are directly connected to the hope laid up in heaven. It's directly connected. When a person comes to Christ, they place their hope in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection as their very own. It's not this forensic thing that happened to Jesus Christ and has no connection whatsoever to me. But no, they, they place their hope in Jesus' Christ, Jesus Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection as their very own. And they place their hope in this unforeseen reconciliation between himself and herself and God, a reconciliation that will not be fully, completely realized until their time on earth is done. There is this longing for to be heaven bound. You get to your deathbed and you're just going, Jesus, I cannot wait. I am longing for this hope in heaven where all things will be made new. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. But I'm beholding you face to face. Therefore, believers in Christ Jesus constantly live in light of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Constantly. And, and the result is that they view life differently. And, and they live differently. They view life as whole differently. And they live out their life differently. Listen, listen to how it's laid out. These are the people in Colossians 3, 2 that says, they set their minds on things above. They know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, Romans 8. They see present sufferings as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. There's this future thing. It's suffering and it's terrible, and it's painful, but it, it holds no weight compared to that future glory. They know that no matter what the devil, the world, or the flesh throws at them, they have an inheritance that is absolutely imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Peter 1. And because of this, because of this, along with the entire creation groaning, they are waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. They cannot wait. 
Paul hears about this radical, really radical and crazy God-centeredness, and it leads him to offer praise to God. He sees what is coming out of their lives as a testimony of God's grace. God is at work in them. And that is where all of this is coming from. God is doing it. God is at work. And it, is, it was this work that created gratitude. But let's keep on moving. Second half of verse 5 through verse 8. So we have this gratitude to God because of this amazing growth and grace that we see in other people. But that still leaves us with a question. Where does this come from? Or what is the cause of this growth leading to grace? What's, what's the impetus that, this, that starts this movement of growth and grace and gratitude? And the, the answer is important. It's critical. It's the gospel. I cannot preach the gospel enough to you. You need to hear it every Sunday morning. You need to hear it every morning when you get out of bed. You need to hear it midday. You need to hear it when you go to sleep. You need to hear it on your highest of highs and your lowest of lows. You need to hear the gospel. It's the thing that holds you together. It's the thing that keeps you from falling apart. It's the thing that encourages you and challenges you. It helps you grow in your sanctification. It helps you to put to death the sin in your life. It's the thing that encourages you. When you think that all hope is gone, you say, no, it's not about me. So notice the following in verses 5 through 8. The gospel is called the word of truth. The good news, the gospel of the Bible is simply the truth about who God is and who man is. The gospel identifies that the only solution to man's problem of sin and separation from God is Christ Jesus. That's the only, only truth. It's the only thing. And that's the truth. And that is the gospel. So the gospel is the word of truth. No if, no ands, no buts about it. That's the truth of the gospel. But we also see, moving on, that the gospel is alive. It's alive. Verse 6 says that it came to them and that it is bearing fruit. And not only is it bearing fruit, it is growing among them and among people from all over the world. The gospel is alive. And so this good news of the gospel is full of power. And it changed and is changing people's life, lives. And I don't know if you believe that. I think many of us kind of say, I believed in the gospel. And we stop right there, kind of like faith. I believed in Jesus Christ. I have faith in God. And it stops there at the point of salvation. But the reality is that the gospel is a lifelong living thing in us. It is the thing that we need just as we need air. If you don't have the gospel and you're not breathing it in, you start decaying. We also see that it involves hearing and understanding. They had heard 
message. They heard it. And like Lydia in Acts chapter 16, God opened their hearts to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. God opened their hearts. So the gospel involves, part of the equation is hearing and understanding. And this message came to them, how? By Epaphras. Which is how the gospel usually comes to others. Another person. So I'm going to tell you, you have a living, powerful thing called the gospel. And it is truth. And you are the vessel by which God chooses to announce, to proclaim, to herald this powerful thing. Every place that you are located, every interaction that you are, are in is an opportunity to share the gospel, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to say this, this is the reality about God. And let me tell you, I love you. I love you, but this is the truth about you. And the only way to bridge this chasm is not your good works. It's not your faithful attendance to church. It's not just by taking sacraments. It's not even by sitting in the pews. I'm going to tell you the thing that you need to bridge this chasm is nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with God. And I, I love you enough to tell you this. Because I love you, you need to respond. You need to respond to this good news. So friends, this is the gospel. It is the message of truth and grace that changes people's life. The gospel is simple, but it is powerful good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that can result in full and free deliverance of sin on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Full and free deliverance. Get that. It is possible. It comes to us by people who declare it. And when it is heard and it is understood and God opens the heart, it changes absolutely everything. Everything. All of the change, all the growth, all the grace that we experience have its roots and its foundations in the gospel. Now, when I say gospel... I know many of you are still thinking about going to heaven or receiving Jesus Christ, your Savior, and I certainly mean that, but there's more. Receiving Christ is deciding to turn from your sins, to repent, to trust in Christ. But from the moment, that moment on, everything about your life is rooted in the gospel, and it is because of the gospel. So Christ provides this foundation in the gospel. The Spirit empowers the fruit of the gospel. And what does God the Father receive? He receives gratitude and glory. I love that kind of Trinitarian kind of thing going on there. Christ's foundation, Spirit-empowered fruit, and God, God glorifying gratitude. And living with Jesus at the center, at the core, means that we continually continually come back and preach the gospel to our hearts even after we've received Christ living with Christ at the center 
becomes a life characterized by the amazing mystery of Christ in you. Think about that. The amazing mystery of Christ in you. The hope of glory. It's amazing faith, love, and hope of a faithful spouse who is in a marriage where everything is just falling apart. Hell is just breaking in. And that spouse can say, Jesus, I know you can change my spouse. I choose to forgive. And I believe that one day you will make sense of all of this. It's the amazing faith, love, and hope of a dying man or woman who says, Jesus, I know you will never abandon me. So even in death, that I'm, go- I'm, I'm going to continue ministering to people while I am dying. And I'm going to do this because you see it and it brings you great glory. It is the amazing faith, hope, and love of a person who has lived through or is living through horrible abuse. And they can say, Jesus, I trust that you will rule over every, everything, even the bad and the unfair stuff. And I choose to view my past through the lens of a Christ-like love. And I choose to believe that you take away what people intended to be evil and you will use it for good even if I can't see it right now. It is the amazing faith, love, and hope for the couple who looks at a negative home pregnancy test for the second time, third time, fourth time, the twelfth time, and can pray, Jesus, we don't know why you don't give us the desires of our heart. But even in the midst of this, we choose to trust you. We won't let this divide our love for you or for each other. And we choose to believe that this suffering is not pointless. One day you'll explain to all of us and how it has made us more like Christ. But it's not only, friends, it's the gospel is not only for traumatic cases. Because I think we often believe that, right? Man, it's for those people who are really down and out on their luck. They need the gospel. The reality is living with Christ at at the core through faith, love, and hope applies to many other areas of life as well. It it applies to stay-at-home moms who labor to clean up Cheerios and dirty diapers and point their kids to Christ. It it applies to the middle management types who, who are passed up from a promotion because you won't sacrifice your family for your next career move. It's for teenagers who are ridiculed because you refuse to be in the wrong places, say the wrong things, or watch the wrong stuff. It's for grandparents who have to pray from a distance as they watch their grandkids make bad choices. It's for faithful servants who joyfully serve Christ week after week after week even though you are rarely thanked. When Christ is at the core, we see 
all of life differently. We live differently. And the product of that amazing difference is the expression of gratitude to God. People see what God has done in small ways and large ways. And they praise Him. This Day Church, you need to know that there have been a multitude of times in our, our short history as a church where the history of what God has done here and in and the present fruit that I see where it has created a tremendous amount of gratitude in my heart to God. Our peaks and our valleys and our plains. I watch it to watch you. As a shepherd watches his sheep, and my heart is welled up with gratitude. I find myself sometimes just even shaking my head, just kind of dumbfounded at the stories of faithfulness and the wonderful things that God is doing here. And you need to know, as your pastor, I am, I am grateful to God for you. And this morning, I want to call you I want to call you to be the kind of people who create even more gratitude to God. I want our church to be so saturated, so saturated by the centrality of Jesus Christ that it leads to amazing spiritual growth. The kind of of, of amazing gospel grounded spiritual empowered spirit empowered father exalting growth that people have got to look to your life and say wow God did that and then you say with passion yeah God did do that And it is going to be a roller coaster ride. But one that will be nothing but a sheer blessing to you, to your children, to your children's children. As we serve and worship the one who has made this all possible. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for the foundation that he has set in the gospel for each and every one of us who is in Christ. I thank you for this uh, spirit-rich environment that you allow us to live in Lord, I thank you that your spirit so empowers us that it bears fruit because, Lord, I know that my flesh is still, uh, still within me and I, I, I desire often to live in the flesh. 
And there's this constant battle between my flesh and your spirit's work. And Lord, I thank you for that. The spirit is greater than the flesh that is within me. So Lord, I thank you for the foundation in Christ. I thank you for spirit-empowered fruit. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we have an opportunity to express our gratitude to you, Father. I'm thankful that the gospel is not just for weak people, but it's also for strong people who think they're strong. I'm thankful, God, that the gospel is the very thing that calls out to those who are hungering and thirsting, those who are, who are just needing something. The gospel is calling out to those who are weak and heavy laden and that ultimately we can find our rest in you. Knowing that it's all about you in the first place. So Father, as we come to the table, would you nourish our aching souls? As we have heard the truth of Jesus Christ, Would you, through the mystery of the Lord's Supper, would you feed us? Would you remind us? Would you satisfy us as we come to you? And Lord, I'm thankful that you prepare a table And that table will see its ultimate fulfillment on that last day where every brother and sister in Christ will sit around that table and feast with Christ at the head of the table. So encourage us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.